part of the podcast, I'm going to be discussing three main topics. First, I'm going to get into the history and context of logic in India. That's mainly what I'm going to be talking about. Then, I'm going to take us back to our Kashgar friend from earlier in the podcast and explain how the syllogism regarding white bears that kind of stumped him could be rewritten using Indian logic and why he'd be more likely to understand it. Third and finally, I'm going to show you how Indian logicians working in the Buddhist tradition had in effect arrived at the same conclusions that their Western philosopher counterparts in Europe would not arrive at for at least another thousand years. So let's dive into that history uh, to get started now. The earliest writings in logic in India appear in a text known as the Naya Sutras, which was first put, da- which was first put down in the 6th century BCE by Aksapada Gautama. Now, while Gautama was possibly the first to write down the Naya Sutras, these hymns, known as Vedas, which are encoded in a language called Vedic Sanskrit, had been orally transmitted for many hundreds of years prior to this, and some of the Vedas go as far back as, this, as 1700 BCE. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, Indian sages who developed the Vedas and were known as Rishis had developed elaborate methods of knowledge encoding that do not require writing and can be supported simply by one's own mind. They used the Sanskrit language, or the Vedic Sanskrit language, which was basically reserved for scholarship and was not a day-to-day spoken vernacular language, um, you know, for their work. And, and you can think of Sanskrit a bit like how the European priests and scholars would use Latin in all of their communications through the Middle Ages. But unlike Latin prayers, which could be memorized through rhymes and chants, Vedic Sanskrit um, would, you know, they would use rhyming techniques like this as well, but they would also use every part of the mind and body to encode information. And that could include time-body vibrations. uh, And also they would build these mental maps, uh, such as the mandala, uh, which is what they called it. And you can think of the the mandala as a, a kind of a mental map of the universe, similar to those those memory palaces that the classical Greeks would construct in their minds so that they could keep track of everything they learned. point I'm trying to make here is that the Indian Vedics may have been the only culture in the world to have developed a system of knowledge encoding that doesn't require writing. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, what are these um, Vedics doing? and Or why, why are these Vedics doing this? And what was their objective? And again, we need to step back and look at India's geography and their circumstances that shaped the, to, to understand what shaped the country's culture. India, like China, is also isolated from most of the rest of Asia. If you look at a map, it's easy to see that India is roughly um, a massive peninsula surrounded by water on its southern end and surrounded by mountains on its northern end. The most porous border on its eastern side is shared by China, but it's really made up of very thick jungle. However, unlike China, which was so far east and required incredible journeys to get to from the Middle East, India was much closer and mainly traded from its west coast via the Arabian Sea. So this meant that India was trading at first with Middle Easterners, in particular the Sumerians, who would come down through the Persian Gulf as far back as the 3rd millennium BCE. Then later, around 100 BCE, Greek sailors discovered that they could avoid traversing the coastline of the Persian Gulf 
and instead sail out into the open waters of the Arabian Sea in late spring and then have these monsoon winds whisk them to the West Indian coast. They could have then spent the summer trading in India and then used those reverse monsoon winds in early autumn to take them back to Egypt. So sounds like it would have been kind of an interesting summer for those those Greeks and Indians every year. Um, at any rate, because India was always uh, rich in natural resources, it's long had a, had a very strong uh, and, and peaceful trading relation with its neighbors, uh, mainly with the, the Europeans and the Middle Easterners. The problems India faced, though, were not from these powers um, in Europe and Middle East, although, of course, from time to time that, that could be the case, but more often, it would be nomadic tribes pouring in through the northern mountain ranges. Now, I should point out that the problems India faced with invading nomads was actually quite common throughout most of the history of civilization. In fact, there's a general pattern where you'll see uh, a wealthy empire or a city-state um, uh, where essentially the ruling class draws the envy of these nomads living outside of the cities and the nomads will resent the ruling class and eventually the nomads will get organized into an army and then take over the cities. And then over time, those nomads will get very comfortable and very urbanized and uh, become very effect and vulnerable. And so the cycle will just sort of repeat itself with a new set of no nomads. And so this is this was the case with India as well. Um, uh, the, the main example here is if you if you look at the northern Indians, uh, they're often referred to as Aryans because they're most likely an admixture of indigenous Indians and northern Persians who are known as the Aryans. And so this is also where we get the word Iran from. So because India always had good trading relationship relations with its neighbors, like the Sumerians and later the, the Greeks and Romans, it didn't have good reason to go off on conquests because in many ways the world would come to India and it was India that was selling all the high-end luxury items that everyone else wanted. But as I mentioned earlier, India did experience these nomadic incursions which disrupted an otherwise peaceful society. Now to be sure, there's always been infighting within India for power, but it was not on the same scale as what China experienced during the Warring States period or even what Japan um, experienced after the um, uh, first uh, century CE. So furthermore, China's violence was almost exclusively from internal strife, whereas India's violence was could be from internal strife, but it was just as often from, from invading nomads. And a good example that sort of illustrates the differences between China and India here is to take a look at the Great Wall of China. Now, the Great Wall of China started off as a smaller set of walls uh, intended to keep nomads out in the north, um, but not really all that um, all that significant. But after the Warring States period ended, China's new emperor, who, as you recall, was Qin Shi Huang, he took over and he started joining up these smaller walls to create the nucleus of what we now call the Great Wall of China. And as a result of this, this new wall that would eventually get built out, um, a nomadic tribe known to the north, known as the Huns, uh, as in Attila the Hun, although this was much before his time, they were repelled from uh, invading uh, China by the Great Wall of China. So 
as a result, they just flowed west and they flowed south and they ended up invading China and eventually, or sorry, they ended up invading India and eventually Europe. Now, if we go back and we look at our friend uh, Master Mo from China, Mo Ji, his response to all of this violence during the Warring States period was to look for objective ethical standards to bring harmony to China. So his reaction was a call for egalitarianism. He wanted everyone in China to get along better. And the same can be said for the Greeks, who also moved towards egalitarianism after years of fighting with the Persians. And India, they also saw war and violence as a zero-sum game. But due to the different nature of violence in India, the cultural reaction was to embrace pacifism, which is not quite the same thing as egalitarianism. And as a result of this cultural dynamic, the highest ideal in India was to understand and embrace dharma, which is the Sanskrit word for cosmic law and order. Now, dharma is a uniquely Indian word and cannot be easily described, apart to say that it encompasses ideas of what is right and what is good and one's duty towards other humans. There are many parallels between the Vedic uh, dharma and the Mohist jur, as in universal uh, love and benevolence. But if we if we look um, at the... But if we are to look at the differences, the Mohists are probably more interested in developing a pragmatic and objective approach to ethics and morality, whereas the Vedic sages had something of a more all-encompassing project in mind. Now, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, in order to accomplish analytics and logic, one needs to have both the ability to perform conscious reflection as well as the space to undertake democratic debate. Now, for the Greeks, they could count on wealthy patrons to bankroll institutions like Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum. And the Mohists, who were made up of former siege engineers, had royal patrons that gave them cover for at least as long as the Warring States period was going on, at least. Now, in the case of the Indians, going back to the second millennium BCE, the Vedic sages, known as the Rishi, they would get support and protection from their extended families, which are called gatra, and that's the Indian word for clan. Now, it's worth notice, noting that while most of the rishis were men, there were some notable women there too, which is quite exceptional for this time in history. I should also note that a rishi is similar to a guru and a swami, and all of these people are trying to attain moksha, which is a, con- uh, a concept, it's an Indian concept that's similar and related to Dharma. And I should also point out that there's also the con- concept of Brahman, which is a bit like God, but again, not entirely the same. So over time, some of these clans or gatras would specialize in different disciplines. So you might have one family or gatra that studies astronomy and another gatra that studies ethics or epistemology So it's with this family protection that creates a a liberty bubble that allows for democratic debate within these gotras to happen. But there is also debate happening across the gotras, and this was an important source of rivalry between families. So while the Greeks famously had the Olympiad and public debates as an outlet for competition and pride, the Indians would compete with one another in a sort of wisdom competition to see who had the best grasp of Dharma and Brahman, and thus who was closest to attaining moksha. Now, eventually, competing Vedic gatras 
coalesced in a, into a smaller number of schools known as um, Astika schools. And each of these Astika schools had their own focus. But there was also a great deal of overlap between what they studied. So I'll just give you a quick rundown of, of these six uh, Astika schools. So there's the first one, which is we're kind of come back to, is the Naya school. And that's focused specifically on a concept known as pramana, which is the Sanskrit word um, for means of knowledge. So they were really focused on epistemology and would also develop the earliest syllogisms in India. Uh, then we have the Vaisasika school, and that's best known for its insights into naturalism, including its ideas around atomism, or the idea that the whole world's made up of tiny little atoms. Then there's the uh, Samkhya school, and that's mostly known for its study of ethics. Then there's the, the yoga school. Uh, you've probably heard of yoga before, and that's known for personal betterment through physical, mental, and spiritual exercise. And then there's the Mimamsa school, which is known for its theories on the nature of Dharma. And finally, we have the Vedantas. Now, the Vedanta is actually not one school. It's actually um, a, a whole collection of other schools. And the difference between the Vedanta schools and the Astika schools is the Astika schools essentially... Um, respect the authority of the earlier Vita hymns, whereas the Nastika schools um, really essentially start to, to reject that. And um, uh, and that's why the, the Vedantas are a bit different. So uh, the schools would form uh, physical institutions as well. And it's been said that uh, there's a place called Taxila that's located in present-day Pakistan is possibly the oldest known university or institution of higher learning, uh, which dates back to 1000 BC. It's probably the oldest in the world. So that's like over 3,000. That's all, Yeah, that's about 3,000 years old. Now, to pick up where we started uh, with India, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the tradition of Indian logic can be traced back to the Naya schools and or the Naya school and specifically to the Naya sutras which were written down in the 6th century BCE, but they were possibly composed hundreds of years before this. Now, the, the reason why the Naya Sutras are concerned with logic and syllogisms is they believe that inference was a distinct and important pillar of knowledge that stood alongside the other pillars of knowledge, which they counted to be uh, perception, I mentioned inference already, analogy, and then testimony is the fourth one. So in the Naya Sutras that deal with inference, we find a type of syllogism known as an Abhiyava syllogism that predates Aristotle by at least a couple hundred years, and uh, but it's structured differently, and it's made up of five parts. And each of these five parts is known as an Abhiyava, uh, as opposed to Aristotle, who only had a three-part syllogism. So let me... Let me um, let me read to you the archetypal example of the Abhiyava syllogism, and I'll explain how it works. So here it is. One, there is a fire on the hill. Two, because there is smoke there. Three, wherever there is smoke, there is fire. For example, in a kitchen. Four, the hill has smoke that is pervaded by fire. Five, therefore, there is fire on the hill. And so that's it. 
Now let's compare this to the classic Aristotle syllog- the to the the Aristotle syllogism to see how it stacks up. So the classic Aristotle syllogism, uh, it's three parts and it goes like this. So one, all men are mortal. And this is the major proposition. Two, Socrates is a man. That's the minor proposition. And then three, therefore, Socrates is mortal. That's our conclusion. And I should uh, remind you that in syllogisms, there's something um, which we call, which Aristotle called the middle term, which is the thing that connects the major proposition to the minor proposition, but is left out from the conclusion. So in the last syllogism, man is the middle term because it's what links all men are mortal to Socrates as a man. But it's left out of the conclusion when we say, therefore, Socrates is mortal. We don't need to mention the fact he's a man. But in India logic, there is no requirement for middle term. In fact, it would be considered flimsy by Indian standards uh, to rely on that. And instead, there's redundancy built into the syllogism so as to make it clear the propositions are linked. So knowing this, let's rewrite Aristotle's syllogism as Anabayava's syllogism. So, and I'm also going to sort of explain um, the purpose of each of the um, five uh, statements. So one, we have Socrates is mortal, and that's called the uh, prachi, and which is, that is what is to be proved. And two, uh, because he is a man, and that is he too, or he too, the reason for establishing the proposition. And then three, you would say, whoever is a man is immortal. For example, Pythagoras, and that is the Udaharana, and that's the statement that connects the major and minor propositions and includes both the middle term and an example. So that's the kind of the nucleus of the Indian um, Abhiyava syllogism. Four, Socrates is a man who is invariably immortal, and that's called the Upanaya, and this is the application which spells out the similarity between the example, Pythagoras, and our subject to Socrates. Um, and then five, therefore Socrates is mortal, and that's called the Nigamana, and this is the conclusion which was already stated at the beginning. Now, the key difference between Aristotle's syllogisms and the uh, Abhiyavas is that in Aristotle's uh, syllogism, it's purely deductive, whereas the Abhiyavas uh, syllogism, they combine both the inductive and deductive forms of reasoning. So for this reason, philosophy historians will often point out that Aristotle's formulation of logic is verbalist, which is to say that it's based on the letter of the law, whereas the Naya's formulation is substantive, which is to say it's based on the underlying substance. Now, logic wouldn't change much in India for quite some time until the 5th and 6th century CE, um, when the Buddhist philosophers Vasubandhu and Dignaga came along, respectively. Now, by the 5th century CE, Buddhist philosophers had been exploring logical arguments and were big into public debating for at least 300 years. And for this, we can thank the 2nd century CE Buddhist uh, philosopher Nagarjuna, who's generally regarded to be the most important Buddhist philosopher after Siddhartha. Siddhartha, of course, is the first, um, is the original Buddhist. Now, Nagarjuna, who's most known for his middle way philosophy of life, was attracted to the Naya Sutra's approach to knowledge since he wanted to adapt his concepts around emptiness and nothingness 
to the Naya Sutra's concept of knowledge, since he felt um, that emptiness was a special type of knowledge worthy of deeper inquiry. So it was Nagarjuna that set forth the tradition of logic in Buddhism. But it wouldn't really be until Vasubandhu came along in the 5th century CE that Buddhist logic would really be substantially developed. Now, you might think that by the 5th century CE that Greek philosophy, like Aristotle's Organon, for example, would have maybe influenced Aristotle's philosophy. And while there was cross-pollination of knowledge between the Greeks and Indians following Alexander the Great's invasion in 326 BCE into India, which is actually present-day Pakistan, it appears as though uh, the Greeks were actually more interested in Indian philosophy while the Indians were more interested in Greek astronomy. So that's kind of how the knowledge flow worked. And to give you an example, the 3rd century BCE Greek philosopher Pyrrho who's regarded as the original skeptic philosopher, was probably influenced by uh, Indian Buddhists. And in particular, the Buddhist three marks of existence can be uh, seen echoed in Piro's writing. Now, conversely, the Surya Siddhanta, an Indian book of astronomy that was revised over several hundreds of years, was influenced by the second century BC Greek uh, astronomer Hipparchus, who actually in turn formed the basis, uh, helped uh, form the basis of the Indian and then Arabic developed trigonometry. So it's not surprising that the Greeks would look up to the Indian philosophers. As I mentioned earlier, the Indians were at it much before the Greeks and at a scale and diversity um, that was much more diverse and vast than what, what the Greeks had accomplished, at least at that time when they, when they first met. Now, in developing logic, Vasubandhu's prime motivation was uh, to reduce suffering. And he felt that a lot of suffering was unnecessary and was being justified under the basis that what's good for the country must be good for the individual. Now, in Aristotle's sophistical refutations, this is known as the fallacy of division. And most of it, it, we'll recognize this fallacy when we see it, but you know, let's face it, some people are still fooled by this, this um, argument. So in service of trying to argue against this, this idea of, you know, what must, you know, must be good for the country, must be good for the individual, um, he decided that he, he really wanted to um, uh, show people how to debate this. And so he wrote three books on debate, um, and they, they were called the, the Heart of Debate, the Precepts of Debate, and the Rules of Debate, or the, the Rules of Debate is actually known as Vadavidi in, in Sanskrit. And it's really only that last book, the Vadavidi, where, um, that remains. But the only thing that really remains are fragments of the book, and even those fragments were translated into Chinese-Tibetan, um, so or Tibetan Chinese. So we don't really even have any of the original Sanskrit at all. So one thing I'll note here is this book, again, shows us there's a clear link between argument and debate and logic. And we saw it in Greece with Aristotle, and we saw it in China with Master Mo and Deng Ji. And so again, we see it here with uh, Vasubandhu. In service, and so in service of furthering logic, 
Vasubandhu took the original five-part uh, syllogism from the Naya Sutras. So he was working on that syllogism that we're talking about earlier, uh, the one concerning the smoke on the hill. And he, so he took that structure and he compressed it into th- a three-part uh, syllogism na- known as a, a Treryupia dot. As the Treryupia doctrine, and the Treryupia doctrine has the following three parts: first, there is a thesis; second, there is a justification for the thesis; and third, there is an, an exemplification of the thesis. So, using our Smoky Hill example, that Smoky Hill syllogism would be written like this: one thesis: the mountain is fire possessing; two justification because of it because of its state of possessing smoke and whenever there is a state of possessing smoke a state of possessing fire must occur three exemplification as in a kitchen and unlike a lake so in this more compact form it's much easier to see how the indian syllogism is more based on the substance than the words in other words the syllogism links the reader's perception and understanding of the natural world to the logic, whereas in Aristotle's syllogism, the connection is made entirely through the middle term. But this will be much easier to understand if we return to our example with the bears. So let me recap the original syllogism that was given to that illiterate Kashgar man in Central Asia that we discussed near the beginning of the episode. And so that syllogism went... Um, in the far north, where there is snow, all bears are white. Novia Zemlia is in the far north, and there is always snow there. What colors are the bears there? So that's he's co- kind of combined a question and a syllogism in that statement. But um, I'm going to basically just create the syllogism. Going to take take the those sentences, and I'm going to create an Indian syllogism based on the Treyupia doctrine and um and i'm going to turn this into a into an indian syllogism so so uh so here goes one thesis the bears who live in places that are covered in snow all year round are white two justification because novia zemlia is covered in snow all year round and all animals including bears are colored so as to blend into their surroundings for protection or to take their victim by surprise. Three, exemplification. This is like how brown bears blend into the woods where they live and how bright red berries do not blend in and are easy to find and eat. So that's that's the kind of, um, so that, that's the rewriting of the original syllogism that the Kashgar man couldn't understand. And I've rewritten it as an, an Indian syllogism in such a way that, again, I'm connecting it back to perception. I'm con- connecting it back to nature in the hopes that he might be able to understand it. So now I'm kind of trying to imagine how he might respond to this new syllogism. So if we ask our Kashgar friend the following question, hey, is no in Novia Zemlia, it snows all year round. If you see a bear there, what color would it be? And given what we just told him in the the earlier syllogism, I can imagine responding uh, as the following. Well, you make a good point about animals camouflaging themselves in nature. I also noticed that animals who live in the desert are lighter brown color, which does make them harder to see than if they were in the woods. 
I've never been to a place that snows all year round, but I have seen snow, and it would make sense that a white bear would blend in with the color of snow. But I must say, it would be an unusual sight. So I cannot say for sure what color the bear would be, but based on everything you told me, I would certainly be on the lookout for a white bear, and will concede that it is possible there are white bears and even other white animals on Novia Zemlia. So that's that's what I'm kind of imagining him, him responding, how I'm imagining him responding. So, um, and in that, in that, in that sort of, uh, imagination and my imagination, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't think I would have convinced the, the Kashgar man that the bear must be white or that there are white bears out there. But I think I would have convinced him that there is the possibility of a white bear in Novia Zemlia and possibly not possible enough to be t- taken seriously as a threat. So to really sum up my point here, in the original syllogism, the Kashgar man is supposed to make the connection through the middle term, um, and the middle term is where there is always snow. And to understand this is what links the bears to Novia Zemlia. But to the Kashgar man, this is just a verbal construction with no underlying meaning. But if we instead build our syllogism to tap into the reader's own understanding of how the world works, which is to say his perception, then we make the inference needed to allow him to to deduce the correct conclusion. And it's for this reason that we can say syllogisms in the Indian tradition are substantive and syllogisms and by extension logic in the Greek or Western tradition are verbalistic and uh, or legalistic. Now, having made that point, this now brings me to my third and final topic concerning Indian logic. So let's get on with that. The person who most considered to be the Aristotle of Indian logic is none other than the Buddhist philosopher Dignaga, who was born in the late 5th century and did most of his work in the early 6th century CE. Although I would really say that Vasubandhu is probably more like Aristotle and Dignaga is more like the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Now we don't know much about the person himself, apart from the fact that Dignaga is believed to have been born near Kansia, which is in South India. Now, Dignaga would not only build upon Vasubandhu's um, uh, work, but he would also lead to a dramatic pivot within the Madhyamaka school of Buddhist philosophy, which is one of the major schools in, in Buddhism. And in summary, Dignaga's big achievement was to point logic back to itself to reveal that all language, and by extension logic, which builds on language, is really nothing more than a useful fiction, as he famously put it. So that that term again is useful fiction. And this is similar to the the massive and pivotal insight known as transcendental idealism that the German philosopher Immanuel Kant would not arrive at for another 1,300 years. We'll talk about Kant later in this podcast. But for now, I want to show you how Dignaga arrived at this insight that language is nothing more than a useful fiction by building on Vasubandhu's work. Now, the work that Dignaga is best known for is his magnum opus on logic and language, which is called the uh, Pramana Samukhaya. And that translates to be the, uh, in English, is called the Compendium of Valid Cognition. And it is here that he lays out his arguments about language being a useful fiction. But in order to get there, he had to build a tool of his own, similar to Aristotle's tool or similar to the Organon. 
And for Dignaga, his tool was called the Hedukakra, which means the Wheel of Reason. However, the Wheel of Reason should not be compared to prior analytics, but is instead more similar to Aristotle's second book in the Organon, which is called uh, On Interpretation, if, if you recall that. So actually, now is a good time to dig into interpretation and learn uh, about its core concept, which is what we now call the, the four standard forms of categorical proposition. And instead of using more fancy language, I'm just going to give you an example of each of the, the four forms. So first we have the, the A form, uh, which is the universal affirmative. And the example is all dogs are mammals. And second, we have the E form, which is called the universal negative. And the example is no dog is a reptile. And the third form, which is the I form, which is the particular affirmative. The example is some dogs can swim. And the fourth form, which is the O form, which is the particular negative, uh, the example is some dogs cannot swim. Now, in Dignaga's Wheel of Reason, it lines up very closely to these forms, except Dignaga doesn't distinguish between the particular affirmative and the negative affirmative form, or the negative particular affirmative form. So he wouldn't distinguish between uh, some dogs can swim and some dogs cannot swim. He would just assume that, that that's basically saying the same thing. Whereas Aristotle, um, you know, as I mentioned, had these as, as, as distinct forms. Now, this is where things get interesting. Both Aristotle and Dignaga realized that you can combine these forms in various ways to reveal whether a statement is valid or not, regardless of what is contained in the statement. And in Aristotle's tradition, we call this the square of opposition. And this is essentially what the Wheel of Reason gives us. Now, I realize at this point that to go into the details of how the square of opposition compares to the Wheel of Reason is just too tedious for a podcast, and I'm sure I've already tried your patience on this logic stuff. So I'll just get to the point. In both Aristotle's formulation and Dignaga's formulation, there's this fascinating insight that pops out known as the contrapositive. And Aristotle knew about the contrapositive, and so did Dignaga, but Dignaga saw something in the contrapositive that Aristotle overlooked. Well, what is this contrapositive then? Well, I'll just use an, ex an example to explain it. So, in this example, the following two sentences are logically the same. So, the first sentence is, all dogs are mammals. This is uh, the same as saying, all non-mammals are non-dogs. Okay, so that's a little bit confusing to think about. Let me give you a much more simple contrapositive. If I just take the word dog, it is actually the same as saying not a non-dog. And so when we say it like that, it reveals that we're defining the dog as not a non-dog. So we're defining in contrast with everything else around it. So for example, depending on who we're talking to, we might define the dog in contrast to a cat or we might define it in contrast to a wolf. And Dignaga referred to the contrapositive as Anya Apoha, which in Sanskrit means exclusion of others. And it is through this technique of exclusion that we can see the way in which language actually functions and works, and hence how we actually form our own mental concepts, how we think. And we 
at the end of the day, we define words in, in, in such a way as to distinguish things from one another. That's, that is the essential purpose of language. So why does Dignaga care about this? Well, backing up a little bit already, um, the Vedic sages had already established, and, and this goes back, you know, probably a thousand years before Dignaga was born, the Vedic sages had already established a, uh, what we would call a contextualist view of language, which really means that they just regarded as sentences to be the most fundamental units of meaning with words on their, on their own not really having much meaning. So they recognized that if somebody is referring to having a dog day, that wouldn't refer to the animal, but instead the notion that the person is having a rough day. So they had a very nuanced view of language, but even with that nuanced view of language, the Vedic sages still believed that there were certain universals out there which could stand on their own. And so, for example, things like Dharma and Brahman, these cosmic concepts that form the backbone of Vedic thinking, were considered to be universals that were immaculate, were immaculate concepts with an objective definition. But Dignaga felt that these um, these still, uh, these words still were, were simply defined, um, based on the usefulness of the concept of the person defining it and had no objective, uh, meaning. Now to give you uh, a simple example, um, of, of, of how we argue this, we know the old saw about how the Inuits have over 20 words for snow. And this makes sense because Inuits, they live and die through their knowledge and experience with snow. So for the Inuit, snow isn't just weather, it's actually also an essential building material. But in English, of course, which of course emerged from the rainy British Isles, we have at least 10 words for rain. And depending on the nature of rain, we might say it's, um, we could say it's threatening or spitting or sprinkling, drizzling, showering, pouring, teeming, pelting, spraying, misting. I could probably go on. And the Inuits would look at this list and they'd think it would be mostly noise. And so they don't really need to distinguish between the types of rain. And similarly, the British would see the Inuit words for snow as also being mostly noise because they don't need to use snow to construct igloos or worry much about walking through the snow. Now, to be clear, Dignaka was not saying that there's no such thing that's rea- that, that, that there is a reality um, that's external to our minds. He's not saying that we just all you know live in our heads Um, he understood that perception acts as a reality check and that we can just as easily align our definitions um, in order to communicate productively. But again, we're just all building up concepts to contrast other concepts to get there. Um, And, you know, it's still being anchored by, in Dignaga's view, it's still being anchored by perception. So we're never really getting too far off course. Now, modern day philosophers would refer to this this um, uh, perspective or this philosophy as nominalism, which is which is to say that concepts primarily emerge through the mind. And Dignaga was clearly nominalist leaning, but this is again offset by a strong belief in perception as a way of anchoring uh, our conceptions. Now, here's where things get really interesting, where we compare Dignaga to Aristotle. Unlike Dignaga. Aristotle leaned more in the opposite direction, which is known as realism. And realists do believe in universals. Now, ironically, Aristotle kind of deceived himself about how much of a realist he was. And he would often attack Plato for this very philosophy, which Plato called essentialism. But the only difference between Plato and Aristotle in this matter were the degrees of precision. 
So, for example, Plato would say that there is an essential form for a table or chair, and Aristotle would say nonsense, and then he'd turn around and expound about how the world is made up of earth, wind, water, and fire, and he would go off and he would classify all sorts of species of animals, um, providing this essentially an essentialist um, definition. So, if we really want to understand Aristotle's view on how he thinks of words and defining concepts, the best place to look is in the fourth book of the Organon, which, as you might recall, is Posterior Analytics. And if you want to um, read the, um, the sections that are relevant here, I suggest you read chapters 6 through 10 in book 2 of Posterior Analytics. But I'm just going to summarize um, what he wrote here. So what he wrote in Posterior Analytics was that he believed that the natural world could be interrogated through a combination of what he would say is definition and demonstration. And he was an empiricist at heart, and he recognized that certain concepts were basically impossible to nail down. So he uses good and evil as an example here. But in other cases, he shows that deductive reasoning in combination with bottom-up de- definitions and validating through empirical demonstration can reveal the true nature of a phenomenon. But the examples he uses are quite telling. Namely, he shows how triangles and circles can be defined and then deductively interrogated to validate they conform to their definitions. But I kind of think that's a silly example because it's essentially a tautology or a self-defining concept because the definition of a, a triangle really is the triangle like there there isn't triangles do not exist in nature we are you know it is a concept we created so for him to kind of use that as an example uh it doesn't make much sense to me but aristotle also provides examples involving natural phenomena like eclipses and thunder where he shows how deductive reasoning can at least reveal to us um causes of such phenomena as long as we're willing to revise our definitions and conduct more demonstrations. So um, it's kind of almost like a roughed out version of the scientific method there. So from a modern day perspective, who is right and who is wrong? Is Dignaga right and Aristotle's wrong or is Aristotle right and Dignaga wrong? Well, the most, the most simple and succinct answer I can give you um, to that question is a quote from the 20th century statistician George Box who famously said, quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Now, the longer version of that quote is even more illuminating, so I'll read that for you now. Quote, now it would be very remarkable if any system in the real world could be exactly represented by any simple model. However, cunningly chosen parsimonious models often do provide remarkably useful approximations. For example, The law PV equals RT relating pressure P, volume V, and temperature T of an ideal gas via constant R is not exactly true for any real gas, but it frequently provides a useful approximation, and furthermore, its structure is informative since it springs from a physical view of the behavior of gas molecules. For such a model, there is no need to ask the question, is the model true? If truth is to be the whole truth, the answer must be no. The only question of interest is... Is the model illuminating and useful? End of quote. And so George Box provides us a useful way to see the difference between Aristotle's perspective and Dignaga's perspective. 
Dignaga sees language as a useful fiction, which logic can help us interrogate. Aristotle simply sees the useful part from a human perspective and is not concerned about the truth from a cosmic perspective. Well, at least not consciously. This divide between Aristotle and Dignaga's perspective is probably the clearest exemplar of how the Western and non-Western thinkers perceive logic and truth. Western culture has traditionally embraced deductive logic as the ultimate arbiter of truth in a world that is in many ways uh, artificial and constructed through legalistic contracts. Even Western science is not above this simplistic legalistic view of truth. Just look at what happened to the planet Pluto. It was removed from being a planet after a vote was taken among scientists. And even to this day, the definition of what a planet itself is has not been settled. What I'm saying here is that Western thinking nudges us towards this realist view of the world, which is somewhat illusory and often tricks us into forgetting that the nominalist philosophy is in fact truer. This is not inherently a good or bad thing, but what it means is that the Western culture pervades a subconscious philosophy that will, while most of the time, can in fact or mislead us from deeper truths. At this point, I want to conclude this section on Indian logic and now take what we have learned to pose two new questions. First, while we can agree that language is a useful fiction that allows us to communicate, how is deductive logic and analytics um, a useful tool uh, a useful tool exactly? And second, it's all well and good that Dignaga showed us that language and by some extension logic are just useful fictions. But that was more than just an insight. This was a major philosophical pivot and would lead to a major schism within the Madhyamaka um, school of Buddhism and its descendants. And in fact, the schism in Buddhism is known as the Svatantrika Prasangika distinction within um, with the Svatantrika side arguing for the use of pure and autonomous logic as a means of understanding and explaining Buddhism whereas the Prasangika side argued that reliance on logic alone always led to the so-called reducto ad absurdum conclusions, uh, reducing or rendering any debate completely meaningless because the debaters can never be sure that they're talking about the same thing because it's impossible to get to the bottom of any definition um, using just purely logic. So within this debate, uh, sorry, within Buddhism, this debate started over uh, 1,500 years ago. But the Western philosophers didn't really seriously begin debating this topic until, I would say, really the early 19th century, so only about 200 years ago. So the second question I, I, I want to ask and answer is, what is it in the Western philosophical tradition that held us back from this debate for so long, and how did this debate exactly play out in Western philosophy? <laughs> ¶¶ 